0: You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out RedeemingGraceCC.com. Our sermon reading. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of flesh nor the will of man, but of God and the word became flesh. It's fitting that as John begins his gospel, that he uses such incredible and almost poetic language to describe the miracle that takes place when Jesus enters the world, the incarnation of Christ, when the God of the universe who created the universe became one of us for us, when he took on flesh in the form of a helpless baby. But the birth of Jesus was not the end of his incarnational work. Because John continues in that passage in verse 14 of his first chapter, saying, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was not only born in an incarnational way, but he lived in an incarnational way. We see this incarnation of Jesus on display throughout the entirety of his ministry. If we go back just a couple chapters before our sermon text today in Matthew chapter 8, We see people coming to look to follow Jesus. And in chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus gives us some insight into the kind of ministry that he led. Because verse 19 says that a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And as Jesus came to establish his ministry, he could have built for himself a place for people to gather. People clearly were coming looking for Jesus. And so he could have started up the Jesus school of ministry where people came to seek out Jesus. He could have set up residency in the temple or in the synagogue so that people would have to travel great distances to be able to sit at the feet of such a great teacher, There could have been an expectation that if you want the kingdom of God, you need to come to me. But that's not what he did. Jesus took the gospel on the road. He took the message of the kingdom out down through the streets, out into the corners of his community. He reached out to people who were unreached. Jesus took the kingdom message into homes, into places of work, and into places that were radically Unexpected because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and sat at our tables. The word became flesh and ate our bread and drank from our cups. The word became flesh and walked amongst us. The word became flesh and touched our faces and wiped our tears. The God of the universe not only became one of us, but came to be with us. And he calls us to follow him, which means he calls us to do the same for others. These followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, were not only meant to believe what Jesus tells us to believe, to obey what Jesus tells us to obey, to live how Jesus lived, but we are called to minister and to serve how Jesus served. And this means that we have to live incarnational lives, going to and loving the kind of people that Jesus went to and that Jesus loved, so that we can reach the kind of people that Jesus reached. And that is not particularly easy. And we see this on display in this passage here in Matthew chapter 9, as we see the calling of Matthew the tax collector to become Matthew the follower of Jesus. And this passage highlights the incredible difficulty and controversial nature of incarnational ministry. Now, this passage is one that's always just really fascinated me because it seems very straightforward at the beginning, and then it kind of takes a weird turn because Jesus goes up to the tax booth where Matthew is, and he says, come and follow me. And Matthew does. And that kind of tracks, right? That's the way that Jesus went about calling his disciples. His message was fairly simple. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come and follow me. That's the big gist of everything that Jesus was doing. And so this tracks with the normal pattern of how Jesus was calling these disciples into ministry. And even though Matthew was a tax collector, we know that Jesus already had this pattern of calling common and unexpected people to be his disciples so that feels fairly normal but then he goes to Matthew's house and he has dinner with Matthew but not just Matthew but Matthew's friends and now being a tax collector was not a particularly popular occupation at the time but it was also not a particularly moral occupation at the time because these tax collectors would charge exorbitant overfees and would become very rich off of the people that they were claiming taxes from. And then generally speaking, they would use that riches to be fairly uh, immoral. They lived very sinful lives. They had reputations of being people who were not good people, and they kept company with people who were not good people. That's why often we see the language of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes all kind of put together in one space. And so it is a bit surprising that Jesus then enters into Matthew's house and has a meal with these people, but it also kind of tracks again With Jesus' pattern of ministry. But then what really gets weird for me is what happens after all of this. Because in verse 10, it says, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Then verse 11 says, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And that's where I don't understand exactly how all of this plays out. Now, again, maybe Matthew's narrative here is missing some details in between this conversation and Jesus sitting at the table. But from the best I can tell here, Jesus and his disciples are eating with Matthew and his friends. And then the Pharisees come and they start asking them questions. And so are they inside of the house? Are they watching this happen from outside of the window? I don't really understand how all of this has taken place, but here it is, right? Now you have this weird meshing of worlds where you have Jesus, the incarnate son of God and his disciples in the house of Matthew, who's a tax collector and a brand new follower of Jesus, which means he hasn't had any time to shed all of his old behavior or friends or anything. And so now they're all over here at the party and then the Pharisees come and get involved as well. And so I just wonder how they saw this and how they were asking the disciples this question. Were they actually inside of the room? But they had to be in some kind of close proximity to this. And I think this shows us the first difference between the ministry of Jesus and the lives of the Pharisees. The difference between incarnational ministry and just existing in a society because the Pharisees were close to the tax collectors and the sinners, but they weren't living out incarnational ministry. And so clearly proximity does not equal incarnation because even though these religious leaders were close to these people, they had nothing in common with them. They had nothing shared with them and really seemed to have absolutely no love for them. But Jesus wasn't just close in proximity, but there was an intimacy to the closeness of Jesus with these people. Even just the fact that he would come into Matthew's house for dinner during this time, there wasn't just a friendly relationship with coming into someone's house. It was in essence like being a part of their family or a part of their lives for the time that you shared this. It was a very intimate occasion. You even see that in the way that they would gather around the table. They weren't sitting formally, but they were reclining at the table. And these tax collectors and sinners were coming in and they were reclining at the table with Jesus. There was a bit of an intimate association here. And even just the fact that Jesus was in this home showed that he had a willingness to be confused with this kind of person that he was willing for his reputation to take a hit because of his association with these sinners and tax collectors. And we know in other instances of this, there was a confusion. People would call Jesus a drunkard. Look, his disciples are just out there partying with these kind of people. They must not be good people either because look who they're associating with. And all of this enraged the Pharisees. And we get asked, like, Why? Why does it matter to you that this Jesus guy that you clearly don't like is having these associations with these people that you clearly don't like? Maybe that just gets them out of your hair completely. But they were so enraged with this because he claimed the God that they claimed. He put Yahweh's stamp on his ministry. He was a teacher like they were a teacher. And so because he did the same kind of thing that they did, there was some association. When people saw Jesus doing that, they would have cast a blanket on those Pharisees and they could have got some of that stink on them as well. He had a following and people listened to him. The kind of people that used to listen to the Pharisees were now listening to Jesus. And this is the kind of person he is that he would associate with people like sinners And tax collectors, they believed that Jesus was denigrating everything that they were. And then at the same time, he was revealing everything that they weren't. And so they were enraged. And they come to his disciples and they just ask, why is he like this? They said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But then we see another proximity here because Jesus is close enough to hear this. And instead of allowing his disciples to answer for him, Jesus responds in verse 12. He says, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And this is a common theme in the teaching and the ministry of Jesus. He would use imagery like reaching out to those beyond the city gates and the city walls. He would talk about going to find the lost. He would go talk about healing the sick. And when you look at the lost, when you look at the sick, when you look at the outcasts outside of the city walls, they all share something in common. The people who lived outside of the city walls most of the time weren't there by choice, But they were expelled from the city, usually because they were seen as unclean, either because of who they were, usually particularly because of some sort of disease. So oftentimes they were both outcasts and they were sick. People who were sick didn't ask to be sick, but they became sick and couldn't do anything about it. Nobody went out looking to be lost, but when they found themselves lost, weren't able to do anything to get themselves back. And so as Jesus paints his target audience with this brush, people who are outcast, lost and sick, there's a recognition that if they are going to be reached, he can't expect them to come to him, but he was going to have to go to meet these people where they are. So Jesus went to them and Jesus loved these people where they were and he loved them as they were. And that drove the Pharisees crazy. This was not the way that life was supposed to be done. These people had made their choice. These people were dirty. These people were far off from Yahweh and they didn't have any place at the table. And yet here Jesus was not even inviting them to the temple or to the table, but going to their tables to reach them and to love them and to care for them. And Jesus calls us to do the same. To go and to reach those who are unreached. To love those who are unlovable. To not expect anyone to come to us, but to be incarnational in reaching the kind of people who no one would expect be worthy of reaching. And when we live that way and when we do that, the Pharisees in our lives, the legalistic and church people will be very upset by those sort of things, and you're going to put your reputation on the line, and we're going to open ourselves up to criticism and confusion and feel like we have to make an account for what we do, but the reality is is it may even drive us crazy. A lot of times we look at a passage like this and we can easily paint with a broad brush that Jesus only came to reach sinners and tax collectors and that Jesus had no dealings with religious people and that Jesus didn't like the religious people. But if we fast forward a little bit to the book of Acts, we see a time when a very religious man was on his way to do some very religious things. When Saul of Tarsus was walking down a road on a pathway to persecute Christians of the church. This was a man who had a reputation of being a great persecutor of Christians. And as he was walking down the road, who did he meet? The resurrected Jesus, who met Paul where he was, as he was. And then he called a man named Ananias to go And to bring Paul into his home. And Ananias said, hmm, I don't know about that. I know this guy. I know his reputation. I know who he is. I know what he's done. The idea of reaching Paul where he was, as he was, was deeply uncomfortable to Ananias because of everything that Paul had done. Everything that he believed, all the threats that he was breathing against the church, it was even a danger to Ananias' own well-being to go and do this. And yet, even though it made him deeply uncomfortable, he went. And he loved Paul where he was, as he was. And so this kind of incarnational ministry is incredibly difficult and overwhelming. But it's worth it. I mean, if we just want to talk in pure results, look at what happened here. Jesus goes to Matthew, the tax collector, someone that any other teacher or rabbi would have just walked right by. He goes to Matthew and he says, come and follow me. And Matthew got up and left everything behind to follow Jesus. And now look whose gospel we're reading. These are the words of Matthew. Paul was a man that everyone would have counted off. He is too wrapped up in his faith. He is too wrapped up in his zealousness and his legalism. He's too wrapped up in the law. There's no way that he could possibly follow after Jesus. And yet he met Jesus. He followed Jesus and wrote two-thirds of the New Testament that teach us how to follow after Jesus. It may be difficult, but it's always difficult worth it. Jesus has called us to go and to reach his lost sheep, no matter how unpopular or unpleasant that that may seem. And so we have to take some evaluation of our lives to see, are we that kind of incarnational person? And if there is no one that we spend real meaningful time with, for the sake of loving them as Jesus loves them, that either makes others or ourselves uncomfortable, then we're probably missing a very crucial part of the Jesus mission. He continued. He didn't stop at verse 12. But then he decided to interject some scripture. And Jesus quotes the passage that we read out of the Old Testament this morning. And I love that this is the way he interjects this to these Pharisees who were teachers of the law. He said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's the manifesto of Jesus. Jesus. And if we are meant to live out the ministry of Jesus, then that has to resonate within us as well. That we're not here just to attract to attract the good people or the people that we like or the people that we think are good candidates for faith and following after Jesus. But Jesus has called us when we were sinners to be sons and daughters of God. And he calls us to go out and to do the same in our ministry. This is the kind of life that Jesus expects from his followers that we don't count the cost that we don't analyze the risk that we don't look at our reputations or our comfort levels but we are willing to go and meet people where they are as they are to love them as christ loves them for the sake of the gospel and it's hard and it's controversial and it may cost a lot and here's the problem That's not the end of the controversy with this kind of incarnational life. Because even though Jesus loved these people as they were, where they were, he had no intentions to leave them as they were, where they were. See, Matthew didn't just get an incarnational meal, he got an invitation. Jesus didn't just say, I'm going to come and share life with you. I'm going to come and recline at your table. Before any of that happened, Jesus said, come and follow me. And I love the bluntness of the calling that Jesus makes. There is no question on what Jesus is doing here, that there is a purpose to the incarnational ministry of Jesus. And when I'm having these conversations with my friends and with people that I know that are not followers of Jesus, it just never feels this straightforward I feel like I've got to go around the conversations and find the common interest and just take some sort of long road to getting to this conversation. I get so uncomfortable and my stomach ties and knots and my tongue gets all sweaty and weird and I say weird things and I do weird things and then maybe I can stumble into saying something about Jesus. But Jesus walks up to Matthew and he says, hey, first, come follow me. Now let's go and eat dinner together. Jesus is intentional in his incarnation. He loves his sinner and tax collector friends, but never loses sight of the purpose. He didn't come just to be with sinners. He's not a hospice nurse here. Jesus comes to bring healing. Jesus comes to turn the lights on. He comes to call sinners out of darkness and into marvelous light. And he never loses sight of that. He never gets off mission. He's not just incarnational for the sake of making someone feel love because he knows that the fullness of showing his love would be to call them out of what's keeping them in bondage and into the freedom that he brings. And this is where the difficulty can come, on the other side of incarnation. Because there is an otherness to incarnation. Because even though the religious leaders and the Pharisees may have started to confuse Jesus for the sinners and the tax collectors, I can assure you that there was never a moment when the sinners and the tax collectors confused Jesus as one of them. He was with them and he loved them and he was reclining at their table, but he was Jesus and they knew what he stood for and they knew that he was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. You're with people when you live incarnationally. But if you're following after Jesus and those people are not, there is a clear and recognizable difference. And sometimes that difference is enough to create some discomfort. It's like, and this is a bit of a particular thing here, but I imagine you have probably felt something similar to this. But a lot of times when I meet somebody, I kind of bury the lead on what I do for a living Right. And so it, it, it comes a while before someone asks the question, like, what do you do? Because the minute I say that I am a pastor, everything changes. I bought a couch from a thrift store this weekend. It was awesome. It was a really great couch. I'm really excited about it. It's a lot of room for like small group sort of environments. It's really nice. But the guy that was helping us load it up was just talking to me fairly freely. We we're just having normal conversation. At one point, he asked me what I did for a living because he so he works and does props for movies and stuff. And I was like, oh, I have a friend who does cars for props. And that, I guess, triggered in his mind, like, oh, well, why do you know someone who does this? What do you do for a living? And then I said, I'm a pastor. And now, all of a sudden, we weren't having a normal conversation. All of a sudden, everything got weird. And he tried to up the spiritual content of it, even though I could tell it wasn't really a thing that resonated with him very deeply. And I felt like now there was a bit of a wall that we had to get past again. Because sometimes incarnational ministry and life gets weird when you're a follower of Jesus and you're spending time with people who aren't, because there is a certain level of impasse there. And that is especially true when we do this the way that Jesus has called us to, that it's not just life together with people who are overlooked, but life together with people who are overlooked, who we bring in, become come and follow Jesus. The kind of language that Jesus used of the woman at the well when he said, go and sin no more. Because the reality is without invitation, there is no incarnation. If we are just spending time together, then we're just hanging out. And hanging out's fun, and hanging out's fine, but hanging out is not the mission here. And so we are called to go and to love people where they are, as they are, but to bring with us the invitation to come and to follow Jesus with us. And when that part of incarnation enters into our relationships, this can be as equally uncomfortable to them as our relationship with those people is to the religious and legalistic people around us. And so here's the problem with incarnational life and ministry. Incarnational life is guaranteed to keep you in a place of discomfort and alienation. And that's okay. You are going to feel like you don't have a place with your friends who are legalistic and think that you're making a mistake for spending time with people who don't follow Jesus and whose lives may be very clearly pointed in a different direction. And you are going to feel uncomfortable when you bring Jesus into your relationship with those who don't follow Jesus, because oftentimes they're going to reject Jesus. Because we can talk about Paul. We can talk about Matthew. We can talk about John and all of these disciples who follow Jesus. But that passage in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus said the foxes and the birds thing about having no place to lay his head, is in the midst of Jesus calling people to follow him and them giving all kinds of excuses for why they can't. We see stories like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus ready, but then when he realized that there was a difference between him and Jesus that he couldn't overtake, he walked away disheartened and broken. Because incarnational ministry sometimes leads to people following Jesus with us, and that's beautiful and awesome. But more often than not, we pour our lives into someone, and then there becomes a point where the invitation is extended, and it's rejected, and things get weird. But it's okay. Jesus told us this was part of that ministerial life, that we are going to be in a place of weirdness. The church is meant be. To be weird. Christians are meant to be weird, not just for the sake, as we've talked about in our convictions, not just for the sake of being weird. Christians aren't meant to be controversial just for the sake of being controversial, but we should be actively seeking to take this countercultural, upside down message of the gospel to the same people that Jesus did and to reach them with the same passion that Jesus did, understanding that it is going to make us stick out in every area of our lives and being okay with that because we believe that life life in Christ is worth the risk. And so this means that we have to be mentally and spiritually prepared to be incarnational. And to do that, we have to recognize and this is alliterated so you're welcome, you can remember it easily. Incarnation requires first conviction. We have to have a maturity to be incarnational. We have to be grounded in the gospel to be incarnational. We need to be able to hold fast to our faith. Because to walk into a space where people don't follow Jesus, the temptation to walk away is on every side. And it's easy to fall into that. We even see that happen with Peter. When Peter started spending too much time with the legalists and the people who were dedicated to the law, he started falling away from the truth of the gospel and Paul had to intervene. And so it is very crucial to our walk that if we are going to do incarnational ministry where we're putting ourselves in situations where we are with people, doing life with people who are not following Jesus, maturity and conviction is a requirement that we are steadfast in our faith. But incarnation also requires compassion. And oftentimes conviction and compassion don't go together very well. You'll have people who are deeply convicted. I don't think that's the right word. Convinced. There's the, there's the prefix there the pre-word there. I'm not going to talk about those things anymore. So there is the word that we should connect. They're convinced of these things. They hold fast to their faith. But then on the other side, you have people who are compassionate. And people who are compassionate tend to not be very convicted, and people who are convicted tend to not be very compassionate because those things feel very incompatible. But the gospel is conviction and compassion together, and we see this in the life of Jesus. As he walked through the streets, holding to the message of the kingdom, he saw the people who were like lost sheep, and he had compassion on them. And it was his compassion mixed with his conviction of the gospel that led him not just to be someone who looked on the outsiders as just that and cast judgment on them, but also who didn't fully immerse themselves in their lives and accept everything, but to be the kind of person who was incarnational, meeting people where they were, as they were, and inviting them into a new life. So we have to see people with love and compassion and be moved by our conviction to the gospel. But then it also requires community. Because there are a lot of ways that this passage gets just twisted and moved around. We like to use this passage to really nail down some things on our political feelings or whatever. But to be clear, Jesus did not spend all his time with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus spent time with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. But Jesus spent most of his time with his disciples. Jesus spent most of his time with the people that he was doing ministry with arm in arm, the people that he was leading and discipling. And in the same way, we see as Paul and as Peter and as these disciples go out, they go out with incarnational ministry in their minds and in their hearts and in their hands and feet, and then they come back together with the church for the purpose of being strengthened and encouraged and sharpened or even corrected like Peter was whenever he had started to stray too far. And so we desperately need the community of one another that we should be rooted in life together with followers of Jesus. That's why we have local churches and congregations, so that we have a hub, that we have a home base, that we have a place to come and to be strengthened, to be discipled, to be sharpened, to be equipped. And also, as we talked about last week, to invite one another to be incarnational together. If there's people in my life who need the gospel, who need the love of Jesus Christ, then I can go and reach them for sure. But if you come along with me, if our church comes together for the purpose of incarnational ministry, imagine how much more we could do for the kingdom of God. So if we're going to live an incarnational life, we have to be a people of conviction, compassion, and Christian community. But Jesus is calling us to follow him, to follow him to the sinners and the tax collectors, to the persecutors and the legalists, to the outcasts and the outsiders and the people who think they've got it all together. Jesus is calling us to experience the insults of legalists and the rejection of the licentious. He's calling us to follow him in living incarnational life on mission as we take the gospel to those who need the gospel, where they are, as they are, and to give them the invitation to be with Christ where he is, as he is. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you loved us enough to come to us where we are as we are. That I was a sinner and you reclined at my table. Because of my sin, I lived outside your city walls and you went outside the gates to come and find me. That I was sick and that you were a great physician who made me well. Father God, for everyone in this room who bears the name of Jesus, you did that for each and every one of us. And now you're telling us, you're calling us to follow you into the life that you live, to obey your commands, to love one another, but also to go and make disciples. to live as living sacrifices, being willing to risk whatever is necessary for the sake of reaching your lost sheep, your sick children, your people who have been cast outside the gates. So God, I just want to pray that you would begin placing people on each and every one of our hearts. People who are far off. People who feel unreachable. People who have reputations. And that you would give us a passion to go and to reach them for the gospel, to recline at their tables, to love them where they are as they are but not to stop there, but to bring the invitation of the gospel with us. Give us wisdom and discernment in how to do this, but also God, ground us in a conviction to your word. Move us with compassion for these people, but also surround us together in community. God, send us together. Let us be the hands and feet of the church going and making this incarnational invitation together. And got through this work, add to our number day by day those who are being saved. As we prepare to come to the table, pray that you remind us of the faith that we express as we take the bread and the cup, that we would be reminded of your compassion for us, where you were willing to offer everything so that we could be your sons and daughters. But God, also to help us to see the community into which you've called us, to be reminded that we are not alone and that you've called us to live life together as your church for the purpose of worship, for the purpose of building one another up and loving one another but also for the purpose of going on mission to make disciples through incarnational ministry we pray all of these things in the name of jesus amen